0: Good morning, and we want to welcome you to New Life Church. You may be seated. Grab a seat wherever you are. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege just to share with you today. I want to say a great big hello to everybody who's worshiping with us at our North Platte campus. We love you guys. You are us. We are you. We're one church in two locations right now, multiple locations. We're going to be seeing more churches planted in the future. How many are excited about that? That's what God's given us to do. Uh, also, welcome everybody at the Carney Campus in the East and West Venue. We are so excited that you are here, and you are right in the middle. You came on a day right in the middle of a teaching series entitled "Mountain Peaks." And if you have missed the last few weeks, I want to encourage you to go online and check out Pastor Jeff's uh, messages. The first couple of weeks, go to mynewlifechurch.com, click on Media, the Watch on Demand. And, uh, man, I'm just going to give you how to click through that right now, full instruction. Just click on Watch On Demand, and then the series, and you can catch up. Well, we've been asking a couple questions in this series as we've looked at moments and encounters that people have had with God on the top of mountain peaks, and where they, they climbed the mountain and something amazing happened. And so we asked the question, what mountain is God calling you to climb because there's a climbing there's a there, there's a uh, the work that goes into conquering that mountain as you climb it in order to encounter God so that God can do something amazing on the mountain that you'll need for the future, but we've also been asking what mountain needs to be removed or taken out of the way in order for you to step into God's uh, uh, redemptive purpose for your life. So today, today we're going to be talking about some mountains that need to be removed. They need to come down and they're, they're nameless mountains, And I say they're nameless because today we're not talking about just one specific encounter or event that happened on a specific mountain. But it's, it's something that's happening all the time throughout history. It's the mountain representing what we worship instead of worshiping the one true God. And so today, my aim for you and for all of us is that you would feel this story, that you would feel like you are a participator, you're an observer in this story, that you would, your emotions would, would be brought into it, that your senses would be brought in, that you would feel this story that we're going to look at from the Old Testament. And then before, uh, before we end, we're going to make a couple uh, practical applications of it to our life. So go to 2 Chronicles, the book of 2 Chronicles. It's in the first half of your Bible, and we're going to look at the story of two kings, And a mountain that's going to, I believe this story is going to blow you away. Maybe you've read it before, maybe not, but I just guarantee you as you read it, you are going to be taken, your breath is going to be taken away at some point in this story. So go to 2 Chronicles, and so let me just set this up by this, because we're going to be talking about Israel and Judah. We're going to be talking about God's people, and oftentimes when we teach or we preach a message, we refer to God's people in the Bible, or we say Israel, okay? Okay? So where we get Israel, we're not always talking about a geographical country when we say Israel, we're talking about a people group Israel, and we get that from a guy named Israel in the Bible. He was first known as Jacob. Then God changed his name after he wrestled with God, changed his name to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. They're known as the Israelites, all right? So when we talk about God's people, often we're talking, we use the term Israel. But there came a point in the history of Israel where a couple of the, the people, a couple of the tribes, they had a little little spat, and they decided to split into two different kingdoms, Rehoboam and Jeroboam they got mad at each other and so so one of the kingdoms went south and one of the kingdoms was set up to the north the southern kingdom was known as Judah so that's where Jerusalem is Um, and so the the tribes of Judah and Benjamin became a part of Judah that's the that's the kingdom we're going to look at today and then the northern kingdom of Israel uh, Jeroboam took the other 10 tribes and he went north now both Both are separately and together known as Israel. I know it kind of sounds complicated, but we have Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, but they're both separately and individually known as Israel, the Israelites, okay? God's people. Now, the expression amongst God's people in the Old Testament, the expression of worship, is kind of foreign when we think about it to us today. It's kind of even odd when you think about it. God's people would come to an altar and they would sacrifice an animal or they would bring an an offering that they would burn before the lord and it was an act of worship it was an act of reverence and obedience to god to us today that's kind of odd what do we do we gather together you know we gather together we sing songs We give acknowledging God is first in our life. We serve in a ministry, right? We love one another. We live out our faith in our workplace. And as we parent and as we uh, walk through this life, we, we serve to make Jesus known, make Jesus famous on this earth. And that's how we worship God. Those are expressions of worship. But how many know that today, even today, people worship things above God, People worship other things like self, like career, like status, like money, like sex. Like, there's all kinds of things that people worship or place ahead of God. And in fact, they worship it. They may not bow down at an altar to it, but they worship it because it comes before God. Well, back then, it's the same as it is today. Other people groups from other cultures, they worshiped false gods. Now, I'm talking physical idols that they would make, images that they would make, representing these gods that they would worship. And even in the history of Israel and Judah, God's people seemed to continuously, they'd serve God, they'd love God, and then they'd go back to worshiping these false idols from all these other peoples and cultures around them that kind of invaded uh, Israel and Judah. And they would would just on again, off again, wishy-washy, serving God, then serving these false idols, and then serving God on the side, and then they'd have their idols on the side and try to do both. For example, Pastor Jeff in this series preached about um, where the Israelites, they made the golden calf. You remember that story? And they made this golden calf, and Moses comes down the mountain, and they're worshiping it. Well, well Jeroboam, you know, he took the Israel, the kingdom of Israel to the north, and he instituted the form of calf worship that was kind of unique, and and, and his reasoning was to help the people in the north to avoid the pilgrimages to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah where they just didn't have to go there anymore because they were so angry with one another. But in that, you see that they they would worship these false idols. And one of the prominent places that they would worship was in the mountains, in the high places, places that up in the mountains. Hosea 4, 13 says this, they, Israel, offered sacrifices to idols on the mountaintops. They go up into the hills to burn incense in the pleasant shades of the oaks, poplars and therabith trees. This is why your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. And then he says, may Judah, so he's saying Israel does this, may Judah not be guilty of the same thing. And so they were erecting these altars and they were building these shrines to worship these false gods. This is Israel, God's people up in the mountains. God himself, think about it, directed the sacrifice of Isaac. There was a man named Abraham. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And where did he send him to go? Sacrifice on top of a mountain. And God rescued in the story, just so you know, to not leave you hanging. God rescued so Abraham did not have to kill his son on the mountain. But on that same mountain, he commanded that the temple of God should be built. On a mountain, God gave the law. On a mountain, Jesus was transfigured. We looked at that a few weeks ago. On a mountain, Jesus was crucified, and from a mountain, Jesus ascended into heaven. But the enemy always tries to pervert what God means for good. And so, in that day and age, they went up to the mountain. And they set up these idols. And so it became well known. It became known as the place, the high places, the mountains, the place of false worship of these idols. And it was the ultimate act of rebellion toward God. Think about the Ten Commandments. If you know them, what's the first commandment of, of the Ten Commandments? Is to have no other gods before me, right? And then secondly, do not make any image to bow down and worship. Jesus, in the New Testament, he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your being, with everything, with all that you have. That means nothing else comes before him. Nothing else will you worship but me. And so these high places came to represent the worship of things other than God, the one true God. And the kings of Israel and Judah, they had incredible influence on the people. So the king went, the people went, right? So if the king was was worshiping God, he would lead the people to worship God. And it went the other way as well. And so in the history of Israel and Judah, God's people, there, was, there were some bad kings and there were some good kings. There were some evil kings and there were some great kings. One of the, the greatest kings is a king named Hezekiah, and he ruled right around the turn of that 700 B.C., right around there, right around 700 B.C., a little before and a little after. And then a mystery happened, and his... Wife and he have a child, a boy, who turned out to be a very bad kid, an evil kid. So let me tell you the story of Hezekiah and Manasseh. And as you experience this story, here's been my prayer, that you would see God, no matter if you are brand new to church and the Bible and what Jesus is all about, or you've been serving God for 40 years, that you would have a brand new, fresh view and experience that you would literally be stunned by God's grace today. You'd be stunned. So hang with me as we go through the story of Hezekiah and his son Manasseh. So go to 2 Chronicles 33 verses 1 and 2. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, that last part is very, very important because one of Israel's previous leaders was a man named Joshua. And Joshua led God's people, the Israelites, into the, the nation, the country of Israel, the land of Israel. And God said that he was, as he did that, that he was using them to drive out this wicked, perverse, sinful people that was in the land, the Amorites, the Hittites. They were, they were very sinful, and attached to their sin was the worship of these false gods. And connected to the worship that they were, they were involved with was every kind of sexual immorality and perversion. I mean, it would make us today in our culture, we think it's bad today in our culture, it would make you... Um, Well, let me just say, I mean, it's something that would just blow your mind if you would understand what they were doing. Children were killed. Parents were offering their children to be killed as a sacrifice in the fire to a God called Molech. And all kinds of sinful, horrible acts were happening at these places, these high places, and even in in the house of God, these places of of worship to these false gods, and Manasseh, his dad, had, his dad, Hezekiah had turned everybody back to God, had tore down the high places, tore down all of the idol worship in the mountains, and Hezekiah brings brings it all back. Check out what happens in verse three. He, this is Manasseh, rebuilt the high places. That his father Hezekiah had broken down his, his father had went up into the mountains because by the way Hezekiah's dad was a bad king and he built them. Hezekiah goes up, tears them down, turns the people back to God. And Manasseh undoes it; he goes back up and rebuilds it, and he begins to turn the people, the people of God, to these false idols. If you go on, it says that he built altars to the gods of Baal, and he built Asherah poles. Asherah was the female counterpart to the god Baal. An extreme sexual perversion was attached to the worship of Asherah. And the Bible says that Manasseh, God's king over God's people, he worshiped the stars and served them. Think about that. And in the house of the Lord, here's what he did. He built altars to false gods. Verse 6, and he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is what God's king is involved with. He's he's consulting demonic spirits and witches and omens and he builds altars in the house of the Lord, the place where God said my name shall live forever. And he pushed God, he pushed God so hard that God became angry. And guess what the Bible says about God in anger? It says God is slow to anger. But look what he does found elsewhere in 2 Kings chapter 21. This is the same story of, of this part of his reign. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he's saying, You know, he he shed innocent blood aside from leading the people to sin. And so he's not just a bad guy. He's a person of great influence. He is the king. He takes other people down with him. And what is at the center of all this? What is at the beginning of all this? Is worship. It's worship. It's who am I going to worship? So what does God do? God does what God does. He speaks to his people. When he sees them going down the wrong path, he, what does he do? He comes, he wants to intervene, he wants to communicate, he wants to, to establish relationships. So parents with me, think about this. If you have a son or daughter and you see them going down the wrong path or hanging out with what you would think of the wrong crowd and they start behaving in a way that indicates they're probably going away that they shouldn't go, they're not living their life for God, what, I mean, what do you do? Well, at, at very minimal You want to try to talk to them, right? You want to try to get through to them. You want to have a sit down with them. You want to get through. You want to help them come to their senses. You'll do whatever it takes, if you're a parent, to get through to them so that you could help them avoid the crash that'll be inevitable if they keep going down that road. And so you want to talk to them. How many of you have had God try to talk to you? When you're going down a road, you shouldn't go down. And God tries to whisper to you through your conscience. He wants to speak to you. And then he'll speak to you through other people. Maybe it's through a sermon you hear or a direct conversation you have with somebody or a song that you hear. And so God God sends the prophets to Manasseh and to the people to say, stop it, guys. You're, You're going the wrong way. And hasn't God done that for all of us? That still small voice, a song, a dream, a prophetic word. Prophet just is not, prophets not something that should be eerie or scary. It's just someone that God gives them a word to speak on behalf of God. But you know what they did? They laughed off the prophets. Manasseh said, I'm the king. Who do you think you are? I'm gonna do what I want. And here's what we need to know as we try to feel the, the weight of this story. When God cannot get your attention through your conscience, your spirit, through songs or preachers, through your friends or through your prophets, through your parents. God has another way of getting your attention, and that's through pressure. And God brought pressure upon Manasseh and upon Judah by way of the army of Assyria. And the army came in, and they took Manasseh, the king of Judah. They took him prisoner. The Bible says they put a hook in his nose. They put bronze shackles on him. And they led him away to Babylon and they threw him in jail. How many think that this would make a pretty good movie by now, right? Come on. This would make a pretty good movie. And by now, in the movie, we would all be applauding on the inside that this bad guy who led the people astray who took his own sons and daughters and placed them in the fire to a false god. Now he gets arrested, and he is going to get his. We would be excited. We would be happy, wouldn't we? If you are a World War II buff, and if you've ever read through some of the history of the the Holocaust and the rule of Adolf Hitler or watched any of the documentaries, wouldn't you have loved to, to read the history that at the end, instead of what happened happening, that they did in fact arrest him and find him and lead him away to a prison where he faced trial or worse, right? We would all love to have read that part of the history. And so at this point, I'm I'm thinking, I'm glad, I'm happy. The guy got caught and he's gonna get what he deserves. How many are just with me? Come on. You're glad. And in my view, as a parent, and as a man who's trying to point people to Jesus the best I can, there's no punishment, there's no prison bad enough for him. After offering, your, after offering your kids in the fire, you deserve what you're getting. After taking people and leading the party up the mountain and having the shrines built and the altars built and sanctioning, all of the acts of worship to these false gods, polluting an entire generation, turning them away from God, you deserve what you're getting, right? But none of that happened because thankfully, God is not like me. And you're not gonna believe it, but it all turned around. And I don't know how long he was in the prison, but let me show you the power of, of God in the power of grace 2nd Chronicles 33 verse 12 in his distress he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors what did he do he humbled himself you see humility has been something that i think is lost on mankind since the garden From the very beginning when man first sinned and we took it upon ourselves to go our own way, to do our own thing, and our sinful nature, you know, entered the human race and we inherited that. I mean, the understanding of humility is lost on us, so much so that I think we need a refresher on what humility is. And in fact, I want you to write this down and and remember it. Think about it this week. Write this down. Humility is the opposite of entitlement. I gave you that definition just to paint a picture because we understand what entitlement is, right? Entitlement is you owe me this, right? You owe me. That's what entitlement is. I think most people from my generation and above would say that the generation coming up after us has an entitlement mentality, that you, the world owes me, you owe me. But let me just tell you this. My generation and older had the same mentality when we were young. Different generations, but my father, who is of uh, some of your generation, will tell you uh, the same thing. We had the same entitlement mentality, expressed a little different, coming out in a little different way. We've matured enough, but guess what? We get better in our own eyes the older we get, you know what I mean? And we have an entitlement mentality because at the core of our sinful nature is self and pride. But humility is the opposite of an of, of a entitlement mentality. Humility says you do not owe me anything. And for us today, if you're a Jesus follower, what is humility for us? Humility is recognizing that what I do deserve is death. I deserve death and hell for my sin. I might not be as bad as this guy, I might not have the influence to take other people down with me like he did, but for my sin, I deserve death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so for us is recognizing I deserve death, but I get grace. Humility is being Stunned and being in awe of grace because Jesus went to the cross and he died in our place. We do not have to pay the price for our sin. When we realize that and embrace it, it causes us to not have this entitlement mentality but to humble ourselves and be with a humble attitude, serve the Lord. Are you with me today? So for us, it's being in awe, in awe of his grace. So in his distress, in his prison. The, by the way, there was no prison dark enough, in my view, for this guy. No prison that smelled enough. No beating that he could get that would be enough. That's just me, confessing. In his distress, he humbled himself before God. He humbled himself before God. You see, humility is the opposite of entitlement. But how many like me, you, can, you may be feeling unco- uncomfortable by my confessions, but how many could just join with me for a moment? And you question his change of heart. You know what I'm saying? Because there's been times in my life, especially when I was growing up in my parents' house, and I got caught, and I was facing punishment, and what did I do? I threw myself on the mercy of my dad, right? As he was, as he was getting the belt out, because my dad believed in the Bible, and so that's what he did. Uh, I threw myself, spare the rod and spoil the child, that's where there, that comes from. I threw myself on, on his mercy. I humbled myself. I got low. And it happened in a moment, right? And so I, so I sometimes question <laughs> when I read this, is he sincere, right? But watch this. Something different here. He stopped making excuses. He owned up to everything, and he got low before God. You know, one of the reasons we have altars, we say altars for the hungry, because I believe there's something powerful at times, it's not formulaic, but at times, when we get into a posture of getting low before God whether it's kneeling or lying before a holy God. There's something that happens when we humble ourselves and we prostrate ourselves and we kneel before a holy God. See, humility is the opposite of entitlement. Entitlement stands up and stands straight and says, God, you give me what I deserve. But humility gets low and he's got low. He says, I don't deserve to be heard now, but I humble myself before you. Humility is the opposite of entitlement. And when you do that with God, God is so different than me, everything changes. Check it out, verse 13. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea, and watch this, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and this is so very important because this is what God was after all along. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Can you believe it? God heard him. God was pleased. And in a moment, God turned it around. And how did it happen? Because he humbled himself. Write this down. Humility, humility moves the heart and hand of God. When we truly humble ourselves before God and humility comes out, it moves the heart and hand of God. Now, humbling yourself is the behavior. It's the getting low. It's the the expression. It's the words. It's it's the moment and it's a good thing to humble yourself but it just happens in a moment right I can humble myself in response to overwhelming pressure in order to get out of a situation from authority in my life but humility is something that's the character value it's the inner clothing that we wear and in, in, in our innermost being humility is that character value that we should be after that God is looking for in us God is looking for real humility and when he sees it guess what? Humility moves the hand and the heart of God. So God heard him. God saw him. He saw humility. He saw a man humbling himself before a holy God. And God brings him back, gives him back his throne, his influence, his authority. And it says, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That means so much more than I have time to expound on right now. But there was a revelation that began to be lived out in his life and God restored everything to Manasseh. Is it fair? Was that fair? No. Is it merciful? Yes. See, humility moves the heart and the hand of God and one more time, humor me because if I was there, I might say, God, are you sure? Do you remember what he did? I mean, Bloodshed in Jerusalem from end to end, as high as the the horse's bridle. God, do you remember him sacrificing his kids? God, do you remember him walking the people up the mountain in worship of false gods? God, are you sure? He doesn't deserve your grace. God would say, maybe, I know, but he humbled himself. The Bible says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility moves the heart and the hand of God. But let's be logical. How can saying one prayer make everything change? Well, here's how we know how serious Manasseh was because it was not just jailhouse religion that he got. Second Chronicles thirty three fifteen. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he threw them outside of the city that's how serious he was it wasn't just a confession to get out of jail how many have done that before not to get out of jail maybe you don't have to confess that but to get out of trouble yeah I confess because why I got caught no this was real and that brings us to our final kind of practical application humility leads to true repentance we really need to understand this humility leads to true repentance repentance is not confession. Repentance is a change of mind and direction. As I was going this way, leading other people up the mountain to worship the false gods, repentance says I'm going up the mountain to tear tear them all down. He truly repented. Humility leads you to climb the mountain in your lives, whatever they may be, and to destroy the shrines and the altars and the things that take your affections from where they belong, and that is on God alone. So Manasseh, he goes up the mountain, he tears it all down. Sometimes you and I, we have to climb up the mountain and remove everything that once captured our heart. And so where does it begin? Where did it begin for him? I'm not sure where the very beginning, but a beginning place I see was humility where he humbled himself. And humility, that leads you to true repentance where it's gonna bear fruit, it's gonna come out in your life. Everything that once took his place, gang, it must come down. It must come down. And I want to challenge you. Don't let anything, because there are some of you are going to leave this place and there's some metaphoric mountains in your life that you need to climb with God, not alone. He's not going to leave you alone to climb that mountain. But you need to climb the mountain and you need to tear down the altars. Don't let anything distract you from doing it. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't put it off till, you know, you kind of think about it and process it. Don't let anything distract you. If you are serious, about removing the mountain of worshiping other things, whatever they may be. It may be worse than this guy, it may be, it may be nothing in comparison in our, in our way of thinking. No matter what it is, don't let anything distract you. And, and so if you're serious about it, you don't just say, God forgive me. You repent, you turn. Friends, there is, there's such great power and humility in humbling yourself before God. And when you do that, he can turn it around in a second. He can turn it around in a moment. And he will restore to you what you lost in your rebellion, your season of rebellion. He may not do it in the same way, in the same expression as we read here in the Old Testament, but God will restore to you what you lost in your rebellion. He does things that are not logical. My logic says this, let the guy burn, right? That's my logic. Don't do it, God. Don't have grace. But I can't say that, can I? And a lot of what I've been sharing with you is a little bit for shock, but all of us have that, don't we? I can't say that. I can't say let him burn because then where would I be? Where would I be? See, God loves you, God loves us too much not to deal with us about our mountains that represent things that come before him. And God wants to get your attention if you have mountains like this and he's gonna use revelation or he's gonna use pressure. Can I just encourage you to choose revelation today? Maybe though you're walking through pressure right now, can you you recognize it for what it is? God's trying to get your attention. Can you humble yourself before a holy God and respond to what he's trying to do? He's trying to speak to you about the mountains that are gonna take you down. Parents, they're not gonna just take you down. They may take your kids down as well. Humble yourself before God. Climb the mountain and tear down the altars. Tear them down. Tear them down. Are there altars of your life? Are there mountains in your life? What needs to be torn down? The the altars, they're like cancer cells. They're going to infect you. What needs to be torn down? And all you have to do, all you have to do is today, before you leave this place, humble yourself before God. Get low with true humility, saying to God, God, you don't owe me anything. I humble myself before you. I need you. Rescue me. Forgive me. Clean me from the inside out. Give me the courage to walk up that mountain. No matter what other people are going to see, how it's going to come, uh, the expression of it's going to be in my life, and other people will know, give me the courage to climb the mountain and tear down, tear down every single idol. And when you do that, you're saying to the enemy, and you're saying to those idols, you can't have me anymore. You can't have my family anymore. You can't have my future anymore. I all belong to God. Let's stand and worship in prayer before the Lord. God, we are so thankful that you love us so much that you are unwilling, you're unwilling not to talk to us about the mountains in our life that represent idols, that represent things that truly come and they capture our affection before you. The list is endless of what it could be. But you love us so much that you want to speak to us. And God, today for my friends, I pray first of all that there there would not be any sense of in the room of feeling anxious or worried about the security of who we are in you. For those that are in you, grace, your grace is amazing. But God, may we, May we take an honest inventory of what your place is in our life. And if there are mountains that need to be scaled this week so that the altars can be destroyed, if there are mountains that need to be moved out of the way so that we can truly worship you with all, may we have the courage to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.